Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Behind every great song is a great writer. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth interviews with the accomplished and influential writers and composers behind some of those great songs, from the well-known to the ones you should know. On each episode, we feature a different writer sharing his or her insights into the creative process, their approach to the craft, and the stories behind the songs, from the hits to some of the lesser-known deep cuts. Whether you're a songwriter, a music lover, or just a fan of pop culture, be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes so you don't miss out on a single episode. We'd love to hear from you, so let us know what you think by sharing your thoughts at songcraftshow.com. Please note that this episode of Songcraft features explicit language, so if that's something you don't want to hear, this is probably a good episode to skip, and definitely not one for the kids. You're listening to Slow Slow Disco, as written and recorded by the original Dio Double G, the legendary Swamp Dog. R&B cult favorite Jerry Swamp Dog Williams is best known as the co-writer with Gary U.S. Bonds of the cross-genre classic She's All I Got. That song became a top 10 R&B single for Freddie North and a number two country hit for Johnny Paycheck in 1971. Tracy Bird recorded it in 1996, hitting number four on Billboard's country rankings and introducing the song to a new generation of fans. Jerry Williams' career began in 1954, when at the age of 12, he made his first record, HTD Blues. He found success in the 1960s, recording the self-penned top 40 R&B hit, Baby You're My Everything, under the name Little Jerry Williams, and writing songs for other artists, including Gene Pitney's top 20 single, She's a Heartbreaker. He became Atlantic Records' first African-American staff producer in 1968, working with the Drifters, the Commodores, and Patti LaBelle, but left the following year to pursue independent projects in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and Macon, Georgia. By the 1970s, he was an in-demand producer and songwriter, pinning top 40 R&B hits for Doris Duke, Arthur Conley, and Dee Dee Warwick. Around the same time, he reinvented himself as Swamp Dog, releasing a series of eccentric deep soul albums whose gonzo lyrics were marked by frank sexuality, biting satire, radical politics, and provocative social observations. His debut LP, Total Destruction to Your Mind, was eventually certified gold, while subsequent releases, including Gag a Maggot, I'm Not Selling Out, I'm Buying In, An Awful Christmas and a Lousy New Year, and the newly released The White Man Made Me Do It, have garnered considerable accolades among underground music lovers and earned Swamp what one journalist described as a cultural niche somewhere between Rudy Ray Moore and Frank Zappa. His songs have been recorded by artists as diverse as Conway Twitty, Etta James, Ray Charles, George Jones, Wilson Pickett, Percy Sledge, Solomon Burke, and Bob Dylan. In recent years, his vast catalog has been sampled by Kid Rock, Talib Kweli, DMX, and others. Swamp, welcome to Songcraft. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Me with all too, those... after all you said. I'm, you don't need me. You know that. You need, need me like you need terminal cancer. You don't need <laughs> Well, so you were born uh, Jerry Williams Jr. in Portsmouth, Virginia in 1942, and you spent your early career performing under your given name until you reinvented yourself as Swamp Dog in about 1969 or 70. So... Now we, you know, what I'm curious about is, is Swamp Dog uh, a character that you play or are Jerry Williams and Swamp Dog the same man? Um, they've come close, sir, to each other, but now, but Swamp Dog was invented because 
I was having big problems with Jerry Williams. Mm. And I was having anxiety attacks and all kind of things like that, that people, the psychiatrists and so forth, hadn't studied uh, that deeply into it. As a matter of fact, one doctor put me in the hospital for a heart attack because he, but it was an anxiety attack, mm. you know, that type of thing. Right. And um, somebody needed to speak out for Jerry Williams because Jerry Williams kind of went into a cocoon type thing. Mm. Yeah. But so Swamp Dog just came out swinging, saying <laughs> all kinds of silly stuff, crazy stuff. And legitimate stuff, but yeah. well, that's what Swamp Dog has done, yeah, and still does for Jerry Williams. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's go back to your earliest musical influences. You know, I think a lot of people have the idea that country music is white music, uh, but most African Americans of your generation who grew up in the South were exposed to a lot of. Uh, country music on the radio back when radio wasn't limited to one format per station. Right. Um, was that, was that true for you? Was country music an influence in your early life? Oh man. Yeah. Um, my first couple of talent shows in elementary school, I sung, uh, country songs. I sung peace in the Valley by, uh, red Foley. Yeah. And I sung Had a Call Boogie by Bill somebody. I can't never think his last name. Oh, that was uh, Bill Nettles. Bill Nettles, yeah. Is that who it yeah, was? Yeah. Okay, that's what I was hearing on the radio. Yeah. And then at night, when I was allowed to stay up on the weekends, I heard Bob King coming in from Washington, D.C., and he played all the, the black music, right. you know, and... Uh, so I got a good taste of it all, and then John R. actually filled in. Yeah. Because John R. was down at WLAC in Nashville, Yeah, him and Hoss Allen, and they were they were pumping the black product. Yeah. You know? A lot of people thought those guys were black, but they were white DJs. I know, but they wanted you to think they were black, <laughs> yeah. you know, right. especially at the time. Yeah. So, and I understand that your mom and your stepdad were musicians, and they would host visiting musicians when they came into town. And I'm interested, were there people you met during that time as a kid that piqued your interest and that made you think, hey, music might be a, a real thing to do that I could pursue? I got a chance to meet a tremendous amount of artists because of the segregation. Black artists didn't have anywhere to stay, mm. hardly, in right. Portsmouth and Norfolk. So a lot of those guys stayed at my house a lot of the side men mm, right and but come time for showtime or rehearsal i got a chance to meet louis jordan and mm. people like that because they came by the house sure. to pick up their guys yeah right you know and um my mother and my father were stepfather they were out there on the road and they would run into these people, you know, and you're talking like, well, where are you going next? Um, 
Well, I'm headed down to Norfolk, Portsmouth, Newport News. They said, well, hey, um, call, you know, go by my auntie's. That would be my mother talking, you right. know. And um, that was their hustle, I guess, when I think about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, you, you know, you made your, your first record, the HTD Blues, which we mentioned earlier in 1954 when you were 12 years old. I I understand you played piano on that, but your mom and your stepdad and your step uncle, I mean, it was, this was kind of a, uh, a family affair. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They, they, um, it wasn't my recording session in the first place. It was theirs. Yeah. They had intimated that they were going to let me record, right? You know, so I didn't understand nothing else except I still haven't recorded, and everybody's starting to pack up their shit, you know. <laughs> right. So we did the song, yeah, and uh, uh, it was with a with a vanity uh, company, right? Mechanic Records out of Mechanicsville, New York, right. They press up a few for you, you know, yeah. little as twenty five, right? Which is what they pressed up for me. <laughs> and by the time I gave them, because I didn't know what I was doing, by the time I gave them to some disc jockeys and a couple of record stores, that was it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I got a chance to open for a lot of big, big artists like Sam Cooke, right? Um, at Sunset Lake Park. How old were you when you opened for Sam Cooke? I, I, I was about 14. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of, I feel like a lot of people, uh, their families kind of try to dissuade them from going into music. They think, oh, that's not a viable career. But it, it sounds like your family was very much kind of embracing the music. And, and did you always know from an early age, like, yeah, this is, this is going to be my career. This is what I'm going to do. Well, no. Um, first of all, my mother and I guess my stepfather too, they didn't particularly want me to go into music. Hmm. You know, they said, well, you starve to death (laughs) doing music. But it's very difficult to tell somebody not to do something and you are making it your life. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, it's like, wait a minute, something is missing out of here. So you obviously pursued that musical avenue. Were you able to make a living at it pretty early on? Yeah, because I had a little band, a little right. uh, four-piece band, uh, three-piece band, something like that. But anyway, I had a TV show in 56. Mm-hmm. You had to really be bad not to not to get a show. <laughs> you know, we went over and we auditioned and we got a show. I mean, you didn't you didn't get paid. Right. But you had the opportunity to get paid. Yeah. If you went out and found a sponsor. Right. Okay. And so while I was on there, I found two sponsors. I found Atlas Tires and Community Bakery. And uh, from that I used to get $25 every Friday night 
And I was also a delivery boy for the Washington Pharmacy Drugstore, and I was getting $25 for that a week. Yeah. I was kicking ass. <laughs> I was doing better then than I am now, really. <laughs> Seriously. Well, I understand you were actually the organist at a Catholic church. Is that right? I think I'm the one that started them singing like, because ah, <laughs> they didn't know where the fuck I was going. You know what I mean? <laughs> 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 oh man! <And> like, she, <laughs> but we would have like high mass, you know, like mm-hmm. for Christmas and shit. And they had me doing all kinds of silly. I used to make up shit, <laughs> and they <laughs> and, and they went because always had a little boogie in my stuff, you right. know. Well, you finally scored a, a fairly substantial regional hit with I'm the Lover Man on the Loma label in late 1964. You were, of course, the writer of um, of that yeah. song. How did you first get into writing your own material? Well, I was writing it all along. I really thought that I was a songwriter, playwright, and poet. Um, I look back on some of the stuff I did. It, it, <laughs> right. it sucked, but um, I wrote songs that didn't they really didn't have any, I guess the word is cohesiveness. Hmm. They didn't, you know, like one line didn't have anything to do with the other line. (laughs) It was, yeah. Yeah. And um, so how did you start to get to the point then where you knew about how to write a hook or how to put a song together, how to put a melody together? Okay. I went to New York. Um, in, in 1960, 59 or 60, whenever this disc jockey, Jack Holmes, gave me a chance, mm. he called up the Harold Embers, spoke to Al Silvers, told him, said, hey, got a boy down here. I want you to cut him. And um, So Al was the, the head of Ember Records? Owned Harold yeah. Ember, yeah. Yeah. I went up there, and I had a taché case full of song. Yeah. And Al set aside some time. He had me to go through all my material. Hmm. He didn't like anything. No. <laughs> he said, man, this, he said, you headed there, but you're not there. Yeah. He said, you're not telling a story. He started telling me about writing like a journalist, write songs like a journalist, 
who, what, when, where. Yeah. Now, that was before they had added the why. <laughs> you know, why came later. <laughs> right. But who, what, when, where. And I went home and just started writing new songs. Hmm. When I went back, he was thrilled with the progress that I had made, but I still had a little ways to go. So that's when I ran into a lot of the old guys like Charlie Singleton and, um, well, Don Covey, I ain't going to call it. Well, Don is older than me, shit. <laughs> um, I ran into Don Covey, and Don Covey told me, he said, man, you got to have a hook. Mm. I said, well, man, what's a hook? He said, well, something you got to go back to. Keep returning to that hook. Yeah. That's what the people going to remember is that hook. Hmm. And Work, worked for him on Seesaw. It worked for him on everything. <laughs> yeah. I thought at one time, I thought he was one of the worst songwriters in the world. We, we used to laugh at him, you know? <laughs> and he would say, like I remember he came up to, he said, look here. He always act like he was a little off. He said, look here, man, I, I, I got one. I got one. I got one. I said, what is it, Don? Seesaw. <laughs> Give me another drink. <laughs> Seesaw. And then he came back with pony time. Right. He said, man, I'm, I'm, I'm writing for Chubby. And... They, I, I'm, I'm almost finished the song, Pony Time. Said, but I don't know what to put in there. He said, I'm still thinking about boogity boogity shoot. I said, boogity boogity shoot. What the shit is this? So I didn't get involved. Next thing I know, record number one. He did. Well, it's yeah. almost like there's a there's a fearlessness that some writers have. Well, they, they'll throw out an idea that everybody around them is like, I don't get it. Right. But they go, no, I see it. Trust me. I see it all the way to the end. And they're fearless. They're going to go all the way through with it, boogity boogity or whatever. Right. <laughs> and then the world comes back and says, oh, yeah, we get it. Yeah. You know, and they were <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. His titles never grabbed you. Like, mercy, mercy. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But when he cut the record. <laughs> yeah, knew what he was doing. Right. Yeah, yeah, it was a hit yeah. for him, Otis, right. Retha, and anybody else who wanted to sing it. Yeah, yeah. Now, yeah. you were good at kind of channeling other artists in the early songs that you were doing, kind of pulling sounds in, like a song like a song like Hum Baby has a lot of Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard. Oh, uh, hello, I'm glad to meet you. I come over here to let me greet you. Well, you actually wound up, didn't you play some gigs in the early days pretending to be other artists because you were so good at at kind of channeling pe different people's sounds and things no no 
Of course I did. This guy played me at a club in Newark, New Jersey. Woody's Corner. That was the name of it. Woody's Corner. One week, I was Larry Williams. Couple weeks later, I was Lil Willie John. <laughs> People didn't know the difference, <laughs> although I didn't sound like any of them. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, I did it. Oh yeah, and then we went to Florida. I didn't know I was supposed to be somebody else then, <laughs> and they put me as um, I'm thinking I'm singing. As little Jerry Williams, because I had my little baby, my everything out right. and all that. Right, right, Uh But it had died by then. I had another record that right. was born dead. It was still <laughs> still born. <laughs> and uh, come to find out, the promoter he went on stage and then, ladies and gentlemen, and right here for you, the four tops. Now, short as I am, <laughs> I'm Levi, right? <laughs> now, believe it or not, it was like in a Holiday Inn ballroom. Right. Right. Everybody in there was white. Right. And they were applauding <laughs> as I was fucking up them people's songs. <laughs> there was a black guy, one black guy, standing up in the aisles about midway he knew didn't with he? his coat over his arm and I said we're gonna have some problems I said this nigga getting ready to be a major motherfucking problem so he told me said that ain't the four tops <laughs> We took off. <laughs> <laughs> right. well, you mentioned uh, a minute ago. You mentioned "Baby, You're My Everything," and and that was your your very first top forty R and B hit in 1965. And of course, that was uh, another one that you wrote. But it's also, I believe, the first time that you were credited on a record as the, the producer and the arranger, as well as the composer. Most artists were not producing themselves. So how did you figure out that like, hey, I can, I know how to do this. I can figure this out. I can do this. They were producing themselves. They just didn't know that they were supposed to get credit for it. Yeah. It was, let's say like a Freddie Scott. Mm -hmm. Are you lonely for me, baby? Hey, you know, they the head of the record company who didn't know how to even turn on a radio <laughs> was he'd be sitting there and he said, well, what you got for us, Freddie? You know, and Freddie starts singing, hey, girl, I want you. And then, you know, guitar player start and everybody pick up. Next thing you know, got yourself a little record. Yeah. Now, that record was produced 
by the motherfucker that was in the control room, right? <laughs> right. He didn't even know what songs Freddie was going to even bring. Right. And I'm using Freddie as a overall name for yeah. a name for just about all the artists because that's the way it was. Yeah. That's how they ended up with publishing and shit. Mm -hmm. They said, well, we want to publish. I don't give a fuck. I don't yeah. know what it is anyway, right? <laughs> right, right, right. So later I went back and got all my shit. But <laughs> I said, but I didn't know. Yeah. Or you, and you weren't the only one. No. I mean, nobody no, knew. No, man. Yeah. Nobody knew. Right. Well, you know, after Baby You're My Everything, that was your last single as Little Jerry Williams, but you continued to release records as, as Jerry Williams, but you also were branching out as a, as a producer and a songwriter and, and an entrepreneur in the mid-1960s when you moved to Miami and launched your own label, uh, 8730 Records. At that point, did you have a, a particular vision forming where you're thinking, I'm going to start taking more control of this and, and being the captain of my own ship here? I was forced to be the captain. The whole crew jumped overboard, you know. <laughs> right. See, the good thing about those days, even if your record didn't sell, you could get work behind it. Right. Motherfucker would just want to know, have you got a new record? Yeah. Mm. So yeah, he put it on his jukebox. He made sure he played several times a night when the crowd is there. Yeah. Next couple of weeks, he announced you coming. Shit, place full or wow. damn near full. Yeah, you needed records to book gigs, so you just created your own label. Yeah. Now, I understand that there's a little bit of controversy surrounding the James Brown song, Can't Stand It, which is something that you wrote during your Miami era. So uh -huh. I... Would love to hear what happened there. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, I was cutting a record on a guy who called himself Mona Lisa. Um, he was black, and he had his hair dyed blonde it was all blonde and i'm not saying this because i dislike him but he was a a awful imitation of otis redden <laughs> he sang otis's shit and some james brown shit well, he didn't have any shit really and um so i wrote this song and we went in the studio and we demoed the song. I was playing this club in Fort Lauderdale. He got off his gig early in Fort Lauderdale. And next thing I know, while we was taking a break, he had spoken to the manager, who he knew better than I did. Right. But he spoke to the manager and said, hey, can we go up and do a song? He went up. 
And he had his whole band with him, which I didn't know. They were standing outside. And he went on stage, sat up, and announced. He did one of his songs. Then he announced, ladies and gentlemen, here's a song that I wrote. I hope you like it. And he bust into that song. And when he did, I cracked. <laughs> I ran right beside the stage into the kitchen grabbed a butcher knife that was on the, I'd still be in jail, <laughs> a butcher knife that was laying there on the chopping block right? and ran out to the stage and took a swack at him, but he saw me coming, right? you know, and he ran off the stage and shit and because then my wife and everybody coming got me right she said you don't want to get in trouble behind that you don't want to get in trouble behind mona lisa <laughs> and i didn't but i don't know it sent something off that mm. i didn't even know was there hmm. you know in me i ain't you know fuck it but it just i think i think it was when he said he wrote it yeah yeah you know if he yeah. if he'd have said here's a new record i got out right I don't think it would have hurt me like it hurt me did. Mm. Yeah. It was like motherfucker had just taken just taken me my life away. Just yeah. pulled me out of my body. Yeah. You know. So next thing I know, he went out with James Brown for a couple of shows. Yeah. And here comes James Brown with the song. Partially rewritten, but not fifty percent rewritten, yeah. just partially. Yeah, yeah. Uh I knew it was jumping to my Chevrolet, my brand new sixty six, some shit. And then that line jumped back. I'm gonna kiss myself, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh can't stand myself from something else. All that was my shit. Mm. I didn't know what to do. And I don't know, James Brown was, well, I looked at it like <laughs> he didn't steal it from me. He stole it from Mona Lisa. Right, <laughs> right, right. You know? Secondhand stealing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what happened. Yeah. I wrote the song. I'll never, you know, get any credit or money or whatever yeah. for it, but. That happens. I mean, you get, you get a lot of, um, when you're starting out, man, there's a lot of vultures out there. In 1968, you experienced your first real pop success as a songwriter uh, when Gene Pitney's Heartbreaker went to number 16 on Billboard's pop chart.
how did that come about? Well, I was working at Music Corps, and um, I had a little cubicle. It had a piano in it. This in New York? Yeah, at Music Corps. And um, Gene came in to the office, and he heard me back there playing. And he came in, he introduced himself, and he said, well, hey, man, you know, play me some more stuff. And I played him some stuff. He said, okay. And when he left the building, Art Talmadge called me in his office. And I guess if slavery was still around, he'd have hung me. He <laughs> said, man, you don't even breathe the same air as Gene. Hmm. You know, he said, you you don't be fucking with Gene, you know. Hmm. So okay, man, I planned to do nothing with him, no way, you yeah. know. Uh, he came back there to me. Right. Gene comes back the next day. I said, this motherfucker going to make me lose my job. <laughs> I said, this he came back the next day, and he told Art Talman, she says, I want that guy to produce my next record. Wow. Of course, Art said, yes, I mean, Gene's the moneymaker. Right. Now, Gene hadn't had a hit in about three years, a solid hit, but he had gotten big enough that he still could sell out places. Right. Um, so I did She's a Heartbreaker, and that's when Art Talmadge called me in the office and told me, he says, uh, you, 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 we, we don't need you here no more. So what I do? He says, uh, you have ruined uh, Gene's career. And me being young and shit, you know, I said, he had a record in three years. <laughs> what career? <laughs> you know, right. everybody else was out there doing shit. Right. And he's doing that same old Festival of the Roses kind of shit. Right. And <laughs> the record come out, out under initials P period, G period. Now, you've heard Gene Pitney, right? Yeah. You know how distinct his voice is. Right. Well, nobody yet sound like this cocksucker. Right. And... <laughs> When they played it on WABC, I remember Bruce Morrow coming on, playing it on WABC, and saying something like, who are you trying to fool? Gene Pitney's new record. <laughs> and the motherfucker took off. Right. And naturally, they put their name on it. <laughs> and now he has fired me. But now he wants me to come back. So he sends Charlie Fox to get me of Inez and Charlie Fox. Right. Um, to do the album. Right. But he still didn't allow me to do... We did the whole album, but he didn't put out the whole album. He put out half an album that I did. Yeah. And the other half by his buddies, Bert Bacharach and sure. uh, all them motherfuckers who could not hear Train Collide. So in 1968, you went to work at Atlantic Records as the first staff African-American producer, right? Yeah. Um, and I know that you were producing a lot of big artists when you were there, but you weren't there for very long, maybe a year, year and a half. Was it 
at this point you sort of had your your own vision and you didn't really want to be working for someone else's vision or why did that not really work out the way that maybe you would have hoped it would i didn't know that i had just stepped over the threshold into corporate america yeah right and i didn't know how it worked i mean it was motherfuckers make more noise about having their own restroom key than they do about a raise. Right. You know, yeah, you know, if, yes, you can use it. Make sure you bring it back, you know. Um, like a gas station. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if you got your own restroom key, you moving up the ladder. <laughs> Corporate politics. Yeah. So I didn't know that I was supposed to be trying to stab the person over me in the mm-hmm. back, yeah. In order to keep climbing, right? I, I didn't go there to climb. I went there to make records. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I figured my record sales that'll take me up the ladder, mm. right? But that's not the way it's set up. Hmm. So um, I had asked out of my contract a couple of times. I said, yeah. I don't be here. And in the meantime. Things I'm turning in, nobody wants. Yeah. They put them out. They try them out. Yeah. I brought the Commodores there. Right. And, yeah, oh, man, that shit ain't going to be nothing. So <laughs> they turned them back out into the street. And right. Mm. Ben, Benny Ashburn ended up taking them to Motown. Yeah. Now, no, the album I cut was nowhere near where they went yeah first of all what's his name lionel richie he was playing saxophone right, right. <laughs> and i said man ain't no singles in this goddamn group <laughs> you know i'm down in tuskegee rehearsing them right um atlantic thought so little of them that um it made me catch greyhound to Alabama, where I'd been flying places. Right. Made me take a Greyhound and brought them niggas in on a Greyhound. And now they they signed them. Right. But I wasn't allowed to use the Atlantic Studio to cut them. Huh. Really? It's all, no, you can't cut them in here. <laughs> so I went over to Art Talmadge's at Musical. Yeah. And I used that studio because I know it was a good studio. I think I made one one big mistake. Uh, no, two. What was that, ten? No, two. <laughs> I made two big mistakes. One, they were in there cutting Aretha, and Jerry came out in the hall. Jerry Wexler? Yeah. Yeah. And he said, look here, Jerry, uh, you got anything for Aretha? I said, yeah. He said, well, you can bring it on in. Let's hear it. He said, now, you know, see... What happens is you got a house percentage mm-hmm. of 2% or 2 cent or some shit. He said, now, when you cut Aretha, you don't get no house percentage. You don't get no percentage. Hmm. You just get your little pay. Hmm. Now, here's me not understanding publishing. Hmm. I said, well, what good is it going to do me? You know, I'm not even going to get paid for cutting it. Uh, I'm not going to get a percentage if it happens. Right. But I didn't realize 
just one song, hmm. I could be living off that motherfucker right now. <laughs> yeah. You know? So I declined. Yeah. And I think this uh, second thing that I didn't do was I didn't fight hard enough for a record. I had cut a record called You Are the Circus, I Am the Clown. Mm-hmm. on seeing the shells who were the sand pebbles before they went to Cotillion. Line, I was always pushing the envelope. I had a line in there that said, you got me stuffed and mounted like a trophy on a wall. You don't give a damn about me at all. Record sold 100,000 in one week. Hmm. King Curtis with his little black, ugly nigga self. <laughs> this motherfucker <laughs> goes to Henry Allen and says, uh, Man, that needs to come out. Mm. You know, motherfuckers cursing on records and shit. <laughs> and when they called me in the room, you know, you got King Curtis, you got Henry Allen, who is executive vice president of, you got two powerful black motherfuckers in there, right? Right. And here I am, nobody, and they talking about, me taking that line out. And I took the line out and put in, you don't seem to care about me at all. <laughs> mean a goddamn thing. Right. Um, they didn't sell another thirty, forty thousand. 40,000. Right. Wow. That record was going to go gold from all indications within a couple of weeks. Yeah. But they made me take it out and they pulled it back and threw that out. Hmm. And I should have stood pat. I don't know if that would have done any good. Yeah. But I still feel that I should have. Sort of fought for that. Yeah. That's the end of part one of our interview with Jerry Swamp Dog Williams. Be sure to go right now and listen to part two as he shares more great stories from an amazing career. Still going.